0: hello and welcome to civil war weekly the podcast that answers the question what happened this week in the american civil war i'm your host tim patrick and this is episode 7 may 3rd to may 9th 1861 last week we mentioned a little about spying and introduced thomas jackson into our story Uh, so we had a lighter week, but let's take a look at events for this week. On May 3rd, President Lincoln will call for more troops, this time on three-year enlistment periods. Remember, that initial call for volunteers was only for 90 days, so these are more troops, but on longer service terms. So, 42,000 more volunteers, as well as 18,000 seamen. It was clear that additional troops would be necessary to end the war and without the contributions of the Upper South and border states, the Union would call upon more men from the states that remained in the Union. If we think about the Anaconda Plan that was already mentioned, this move makes the most sense. It would take time possibly longer than three months, say, uh, to accomplish their goals. Bolstering the Navy would be necessary for the Union, given that blockading of southern ports was a key part of the plan laid out by Winfield Scott. By the start of the war, we mentioned that the navies of both North and South would certainly need some work. Without the naval base at Norfolk, the Union would need to look to quickly start producing a vast variety of ships, as blockading on the seas as well as gunboats to navigate the southern rivers, especially the Mississippi, would be needed. I will leave the discussion of the Navy, though, uh, more in-depth at least for another episode. I know we talked about Arkansas not too long ago, but they will join the Confederacy officially on May 6th. 1861. After Fort Sumter, they would reconvene and call for secession once again. Unionists were defeated in their efforts to call for a vote of the people that uh, you might have kept the state in the Union. Keep in mind, it had been a close run thing when calling for a convention to discuss secession originally. There were a lot of Unionists uh, who held the majority uh, during the the session. So with only five votes against, the state would confirm secession from the union. I think the interesting thing is that although they voted for secession, they would write a new constitution with only a two-year term limit for the state governor. Henry Rector, who we mentioned earlier, uh, he was a key role in moving toward removing the state from the Union and he denied sending troops to Lincoln and uh, possibly even orchestrated the seizing of the arsenal in Little Rock. So Rector has done all these things but uh, it is unfortunately the sort of end of the line for him as uh, he is being rewarded by getting a couple of years of his time in office removed. This is just more evidence that there was Not necessarily a united front, or at least if it was united in some of these states, then uh, you know, maybe it was perhaps a little bit uh, begrudgingly at that. It would be in May that the state of Tennessee would adopt an ordinance of secession. Tennessee is an interesting case as there was a split between east and west. The western part of the state would be for secession, while the eastern part Of the state would be against. Uh, You know, part of that is that the western part is uh, more—it's flatter, so there's more uh, agriculture, more large plantations that certainly would benefit uh, from the use of slaves. Whereas in the eastern part, it is a little bit more mountainous, so like the uh, Smoky Mountains there, you know, Gatlinburg and whatnot—that's in the eastern part of the state. Um, So they would not be as uh, reliant on that kind of of agriculture. Relations between the eastern part of the state and the rest of Tennessee, in fact, had already been souring. Uh, There had been previous movements uh, for the eastern part of Tennessee to form a new state entirely, so a little uh, secession of their own, in fact. By 1861, the eastern half was staunchly unionist, you know, much in the same way we talked about Arkansas. We mentioned in an earlier episode that voters in Tennessee had voted Against even holding a convention to discuss the possibility of leaving the Union. That vote was 69,000 to 59,000, so pretty close, but so certainly the majority was there. After Fort Sumter, Governor Isham G. Harris, who was uh, definitely a supporter of secession, called for a special session of the state government uh, so that they could vote for an ordinance of secession Uh, and that was uh, upon his urging for the state to become independent and then uh, officially align itself with the confederacy so uh, an ordinance of secession was adopted and tennessee would soon put the vote to the citizens uh, of the state to see whether they would uh, you know officially uh, leave the union Even with the overall result being mostly uh, for leaving the Union, that did not mean that those of the eastern part of the state uh, had to necessarily just take it. Um, And in fact, it should be noted that 31,000 of those uh, citizens of eastern Tennessee would actually serve in Union armies. That's the largest number of uh, any uh, volunteers of any southern state that serve for the North. On May ninth, 1861, Great Britain will declare their neutrality. The British had already taken a stance of neutrality even before the war was underway. That did not mean, however, that they would not have at least a small part to play as we have already mentioned in earlier episodes. Cotton was an extremely profitable venture and Great Britain was a primary recipient of the exported lint from the South. By the outbreak of the war, one in five Brits were involved in some kind of way in the cotton industry. Therefore, it was in their entrance to continue that beneficial relationship with the newly created Confederate states. The issue was not quite so pressing due to the immense amounts of cotton reserves held in England, though. So they did have a certain amount of cotton already, so just because the supply is cut off does not mean that they necessarily need to Uh, act immediately. The surplus would last until 1862, at which point there was a bit of a crisis uh, in terms of the cotton running out, but certainly by the end of the war the English would be seeking cotton within their own empire, most notably from India and Egypt. Reasonable considering the island nation still held many colonial possessions, so it's still a very vast empire that they can draw on for resources. The Confederate government wished for foreign powers such as Great Britain or France to recognize them as a nation. The British would realize that the affair was strictly internal, and while recognizing the belligerent status of the Confederates, they would never officially recognize them as a separate nation. No, their concerns were back in Europe, and not so much fixed on their former colony. Britain did benefit greatly from the war because they were supplying North and South with uniforms, ammunition, and weapons. A British shipyard would supply the Confederates with the CSS Alabama, one of the more successful raiding vessels in the Navy of the South, and the only Confederate raider to defeat a Union vessel on the high seas. The U.S. government would seek a settlement for the damages inflicted by the Alabama after the war. Arbitration awarded... $15.5 million in favor of the U.S. that the British would have to pay. Both North and South would offer bonds in order to fund the war effort. Great Britain would be a large purchaser of those bonds. Stirring up potential war with the North would mean that they would not be able to collect, and money can be a powerful motivator. British citizens would participate in the war, some 50,000 would cross the Atlantic to fight on both sides. This certainly was surprising, and I myself actually found it surprising when doing a little bit of research. While I'm sure some left for ideological reasons, some were more adventurers than anything. Henry Morton Stanley, who would gain fame for being an explorer of Central Africa, would actually enlist on the side of the Confederates before being captured and switching sides. Stanley had been living in Arkansas and was sent a package with women's clothes when he did not join up. Sort of remarkably, he really did not know what the war was even about, asking his northern captors exactly why the war was being fought in the first place. The Empire had already abolished slavery in 1833. In fact, Later in the war, Britain would sign an agreement with the U.S. government to form a combined naval effort to limit the slave trade. Great Britain was not the only country that the Confederate states appealed to for support. Napoleon III, Emperor of France, would also meet with Confederate officials. Much like the British, the French were also affected by the lack of the cotton trade, but they did not wish to start a war with the United States, at least by themselves. Napoleon III did want to expand his nation's colonial power and thus would welcome a recognition of the Confederate states who would aid him in this venture. He sent troops to Mexico in an effort to install Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian of Austria as the new emperor in 1862. It's a great time to do that because... America was obviously occupied. Napoleon III would propose for the European powers to negotiate an armistice, but obviously to the other countries of Europe, his motivations were to continue his overseas empire. France would be a little more receptive to helping the Confederate cause, but ultimately, without England on board, they would remain neutral. Let's talk a little bit about the Confederate government. We've been mentioning them without really delving too deep. The original states of the Deep South, who had announced a session early, would meet in February 1861 in Montgomery, Alabama, to officially create the Confederate States of America. The speed at which the government is created is something sort of remarkable. There are accounts of rushed action, the first cabinet meeting happening in a hotel room, the Confederate Constitution would essentially be the U.S. Constitution, except it granted the right to own slaves. We mentioned when talking about habeas corpus that eventually it would also be suspended in the Confederate states. This is a good example of a parallel. There were a few differences, which were not necessarily bad ideas. It prohibited those pesky tariffs, established a district court system, item vetoed by the president and a two-third approval for appropriations not requested by the president. So, there were some interesting concepts that well, you could see as improvements, I suppose. Um, and, you know, obviously it was very similar to the U.S. Constitution. To make things more confusing, there was a motion to use the same flag as the United States. Something sort of like, well, you know, we are the United States, so we should just be keep using you know, and the stars and stripes there, so that certainly would have been pretty confusing. They would come up with something really close, the stars and bars. Many people confuse the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia as the flag of the Confederacy. The stars and bars had three horizontal bars with a blue corner and stars in a circle. Imagine the U.S. flag with only a red and a white and then a red bar, and, you know, essentially that's it, I guess the battle flag which contains a red plain blue cross the st. andrew's cross sort of like an x with stars in the blue portion is a little bit different and you know there is actually uh, a variation two variations of the confederate national flag where uh, this this pattern is incorporated um, i'm going to have some pictures posted to the website so that should make things a little bit more clear because uh, i know just describing them here on the podcast is probably a little bit confusing. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily good at those kinds of descriptions. You know, I can do the, the bonnie blue flag of the Confederacy, which I yeah, was just a, a blue flag with a, a single white star on it. So that's that's an easy one to, for me to describe. But I'm um, going to have to go ahead and uh, post some pictures, so that will make things more clear. But that is a pretty good point in that um, there were a lot of different flags of the Confederacy, uh, especially in the Western Theater of the war, there were a lot of different ones that were used. So uh, that uh, that certainly is a good point to make. But back to the action. Another interesting difference in the new Confederate Constitution is that the president will serve a six-year term. The president we've actually mentioned a couple times, and in this case, at least for right now, he is actually the provisional president of the Confederacy. His name of course, is Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was born in 1808 in Kentucky, but grew up in Mississippi as part of the Southern aristocracy. In fact, his middle name, Venice, means final in Latin because his parents did not uh, want any more kids after they had Jeff. And apparently that reminder worked because uh, he was, in fact, the youngest child, the last child they had. Davis was fairly small growing up uh, and actually was known as Little Jeff uh, during his early school days. He would attend West Point in 1824 and does okay, coming out in at 23 out of 32 in his class. Uh, But he does actually get in some trouble for uh, drunkenness a couple times there. And, uh, you know, he he gets posted uh, out in the West and actually um, gets... Charged with uh, not being at his post on time, and, and actually defends himself. Uh, you know, apparently that was pretty effective. Sort of a uh, preview of things to come, uh, because he is uh, acquitted, uh, but he does resign his commission uh, soon after. It's during this time in the army where he meets his first wife, who's actually the daughter of Zachary Taylor, um, and uh, they they do get married. Although Zachary Taylor is not a big fan of, of Davis, um, and actually, uh, Jefferson Davis, uh, at one point, thinks he's going to challenge Zachary Taylor to a duel, because, um, Taylor is so, uh, unapproving of this marriage, um, but, uh, Davis will, unfortunately, uh, lose his wife, uh, due to malaria. They moved to, um, Mississippi, and they, they both actually, uh, contracted malaria, but, um, his wife, Uh, unfortunately dies and actually jefferson davis for the rest of his life is described as a a sickly looking man and um, you know probably could be a a side effect of having malaria he certainly looks like he has malaria is described it like that um, in in several accounts davis will briefly serve in the senate for mississippi but uh, at the outbreak of the mexican-american war he will uh, resign that post uh, in order to lead uh, some volunteer infantry. And he actually does uh, fairly well. Uh, you know, he, he did have that West Point background. Uh, he's wounded in the Battle of uh, Buena Vista uh, in the foot, but he refuses to leave the field, and you know he actually passes out uh, due to his wound. Um, and he, he's, like I said, there's a unit of Mississippi militia, and they're using... Uh, weapons that are known as mississippi rifles which we'll talk about uh here in the future Um, but he does uh, a really great job and uh zachary taylor actually um commends uh uh, jefferson davis after this uh he he says that his daughter was a better judge of character um for the man than than he was so uh, in that regard jefferson davis does get some redemption after the war, Jefferson Davis uh, serves as the Secretary of War uh, under Pierce, who was an uh, ally in the anti-abolitionist views that, that Davis had. Um, so, it's um, actually, um, one of the more effective secretaries of war. Um, Jefferson Davis is actually also responsible for the two wings of the Capitol building as well. So, um, that's, an, that's also an interesting fact. He does marry, uh, again, uh, uh, Farina Howe is his uh, second wife, so he gets married to uh, someone who is you know, relatively 20 years younger than him before the outbreak of the war. Uh, now, by the time the Confederate States uh, secede from the Union, uh, Jefferson Davis is seen as a safe candidate. He's, he's more moderate, he's well-liked and he may actually be able to sway the opinions of the border states. Although a supporter of slavery, Davis was not originally a supporter of secession, though. He was a Unionist, but eventually came around to the idea of uh, leaving the Union. While their members of Congress gave grand speeches announcing their departure, Davis would speak and return to his desk with his head in his hands. It would surprise you to know that the enslaved individuals at his home in Mississippi were under a black overseer, and punishment would not be doled out unless there was a trial with fellow slaves serving as a jury. It may also surprise you to know he was not at the convention in Montgomery. Rather famously, he was at home in his rose garden when word reached him that he was named the new president of the Confederacy. He was a reluctant president. He'd rather be a general much as he was in the Mexican-American War, a leader on the battlefield, rather than a politician. Still, he would have to attempt to do the best under the circumstances. We can take a little bit of time to compare Abraham Lincoln with Jefferson Davis. Both originated in Kentucky, but left their home states. Of course, their paths are a little different, Lincoln being hardworking, while Davis being born into an affluent family. Both Lincoln and Davis would hold much in terms of power as Presidents, more so than the regular administrations. But the appointments to his cabinet were more political in nature, whereas in the North, the best men were given the job. Furthermore, Lincoln proved more equipped to navigate the powerful men behind him. Davis, on the other hand, was more of a micromanager, and at times could not control the disagreements between cabinet members. When the Confederate states were formed, Davis would want an individual from every state in the Confederacy to be represented. It did not help that Davis would be in poor health much of the time, and irritable when those in the government disagreed with him. He was a poor judge of people and failed to replace incompetent men with better ones, unlike his opposite, Lincoln. Additionally, the Southern government was facing an uphill battle already in almost all facets. Lack of a focus on the economy of the Confederacy would prove problematic. We mentioned earlier that the inflation the Confederate states faced toward the end of the war. Alexander Stevens, a former governor and congressman from Georgia, would be the provisional vice president of the Confederacy. Stevens, although described as sickly and frail, had a long political per- career Prior to the war, at one point he was stabbed multiple times by a Democrat over a political dispute, but survived. Politics seemed more extreme back then, obviously. He was originally a Whig, followed by a Democrat before turning Unionist. Interestingly, he helped Stephen Douglas pass the Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854, continuing the balance of power was important for Stevens, as was preserving the Union. As vice president of the Confederacy, Stevens was seen in the South as a moderate, much like Davis. He was against secession as well. That is where the men drew the line. Stevens and Davis did not get along. Many times during the war, Stevens would be critical of Davis and his administration, especially in regards to the war strategy. Despite being a Unionist, In 1861, Stevens gave the famous cornerstone speech in Savannah, Georgia, where he stated that blacks were not equal to the white man, a cornerstone of the Confederate government. So, you know, we see he's a real gem of a guy. Lincoln's vice president in 1861 would be Hannibal Hamlin. Most of us should know the second vice president of Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, as he will become president and begin the process of Reconstruction. We may not know about Hannibal Hamlin, the native of Maine who served as vice president during Lincoln's first term. Hamlin was a good foil when compared to Alexander Stevens. He did not have a warm relationship with the president but was not obtrusive or critical either. In some ways, it was exactly the kind of man that Abraham Lincoln needed when so many strong voices surrounded him. Hamlin was a staunch abolitionist though and would advocate heavily for emancipation he also was key in the decision to use black troops later in the war and also we mentioned gideon wells well that was a Hamlin idea that gideon Wells should be appointed to the cabinet and of course gideon wells would become the secretary of the navy which he would do a great job in modernizing and effectively organizing the Navy, you know, to form a, a blockade of the South. Wells would clash with William Seward, and, you know, it was actually Seward's conflicting orders that uh, made it where uh, the one of the ships who was sent to relieve Sumter was actually sent to Florida. Instead, he was sort of meddling there. so Obviously, uh, the two had some disagreements, um, but Wells would still be influential and, of course, as mentioned setting up the blockades of those southern ports. We've mentioned many of the members of Lincoln's cabinet, William Seward, Salmon P. Chase, Hamlin, Wells, and Cameron. I would like to take a minute to also mention the future Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, while we are on the subject of the cabinet in general. Stanton will not become Secretary of War until 1862. He does replace Simon Cameron, who was said to be corrupt refusing to support a rival railroad he did not own. Cameron also suggested that slaves be armed to help the war effort in the South, which led to his removal. Edwin Stanton had been a legal advisor to Cameron after resigning uh, from his post as Attorney General. Stanton will be extremely effective, harsh at times as Secretary of War. He would cancel foreign contracts for arms in an effort to bolster industry in the North, as well as focus on the development and use of railways for military purposes. Stanton would also be involved in the jailing of anyone who was suspected of pro-Confederate sympathies that we've already mentioned. Originally he would switch to the Republican Party during the war and become, along with Seward, one of Lincoln's closest advisors. That will be a good place to stop for now. We talked about Great Britain and their role in the war, as well as France, we had a little overview of the Confederate government and really introduced Jefferson Davis properly. We also talked a little bit more about the important members of Lincoln's cabinet. Next week, among other things, I want to introduce prisoners of war. I know it may seem like an odd time to talk about that, uh, but there is a method to the madness, so don't worry. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Once again, feedback is appreciated the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com and of course in the episode description we have a link to the patreon we also have uh, venmo information uh, as well as a link to the website Uh, so your support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated thank you so much and have a great week